If you will turn in your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 13. I've entitled this message out of the text, Babylon is Fallen. Revelation 14, verses 6 through 13. Hear now the word of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation." He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to grasp this uh, very terrible passage in Scripture. Terrible yet wonderful, at the same time redemptive We do pray, Father, that you would cause our hearts to fear, and then by your grace, by your love and mercy, you would relieve those very fears. Help us, Father, not to engage in words like this with indifference. We do pray, Father, that they would reach deep into our minds, and they would create in us that which you have desired, that they create a holy reverence for the living God, and a faithfulness and perseverance in those who trust in your holy name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, chapter 13 had presented the great enemy of the advancement of the truth. And these falsehoods by which we find ourselves surrounded, they want company. They they don't want to just remain isolated. They want to bring in as many to believe their lie as they can find. And they will seek to win that company either through enticement They'll try to get people to worship with them, join in and be part of this falsehood, or through coercion. Unless you become part of this falsehood, you can't buy, you can't sell, and you can't participate in the world in which you live. Now, in context of the passage we're reading, the mouth of this dark fountain flowing against the first century church included the dragon who is the devil, the beast of the sea, who I've argued is Rome and it's Caesars, and then another beast, the beast of the earth, who is very likely the emperor cult, seeking 
to promote the lie of the deity of the state, the preeminence of the state, the primacy of the state as that which deserves our primary trust. In all of this, I think we need to recognize that truth, you know, and I, I would, in my mind, I just wanted to say young people, but it's not just young people, but it's certainly, they're bombarded maybe more than older people. We need to understand that truth is an undervalued commodity. I think it is sadly marvelous how easily it can be dispensed with. Truth itself is up for grabs. And let me just say, truth without some type of propositional substance, and by that I mean actual authoritative words that you can read and see and and grasp and understand, truth without that is just an untethered feather in a storm. Truth, my friends, loves a definition. Truth demands a definition. We can so easily call something truth because it accommodates our flesh. We can call something truth because it promotes ease in our lives. It's not uncommon today to hear people speak of their truth, my truth, your truth, as if truth is some personal, malleable possession, as if truth isn't transcendent, as if Truth isn't above us all. Let us be wise enough to recognize the very short-lived and ephemeral nature of falsehoods that claim to be truth and their promises, which are not true promises at all. So many passages in Scripture speak of this, all through Proverbs, the one I picked out, Proverbs 21.6. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. I mean, he's writing this because this is a problem. You'd think it would be automatic. You'd think it would be self-evident, and I think at some level it is, but our flesh pushes it down, and we are so eager and willing to believe that that which is not true is in fact true. Now, in the context of our passage, Rome was promising temporary ease if their citizens would bow to its primacy. All you have to do is acknowledge that Rome and its Caesars are the absolute pinnacle of that which is, and you can buy and sell and you can function in your culture. History is laden with similar tyrants. We don't, this didn't end with the Caesars. There have been despots and governments throughout history who've made this same demand of their people. But this danger, we have to recognize, is not restricted to the Caesars of history, whether in the first century or later. We have to all be aware of the next glittery object that is seeking to win our hearts. That next glittery object that is saying, believe in me, follow me, I'll lead you where you must go in order for you to find peace and joy and happiness and prosperity. It is a common problem we see not only in Scripture, but 
in our own lives. We see it addressed by the same writer who wrote the Revelation, but in one of his short epistles, John writes in 1 John 2, 16 and 17, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're surrounded by falsehoods. God, in His great love, would not allow mankind to be ever engulfed, overtaken, and ruled by deceitful human hearts. Jesus announced, by the way, both of Himself and His Word, that there is eternal truth. He said it, Thy word is truth. He also said, I am the truth. And I don't think we should make a big distinction between the two because the word of God is an extension of his very character. You know, I may say things that might be false and aren't an honest reflection of either me or reality, but when the word of God says something that is true, it is true because it comes from the character and nature of God himself. And this eternal truth of which Jesus speaks can be apprehended by us. And with that truth, by the grace of God, comes redemption. It's almost as if God is going to come to this fallen world and He's going to pour truth in our midst and then open our very eyes to see that it is in fact true because we would not be inclined to do so. Now, chapter 14 opened with that beautiful picture of the superiority of the true Lamb of God. He wasn't the one who looked like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, as we saw in chapter 13. He's the true Lamb of God on Mount Zion. He is superior over all that this world has to offer, And he is powerful to deliver whatever this world has to threaten. There is a great peace in the apprehension of the Lamb of God upon Mount Zion. The things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I think it is only during our times of difficulty, our times when we feel that threat or that alluring, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it that we recognize the need to be in that gathering. As we spoke last week, and the pinnacle of that gathering in terms of our human activity is when we get together as the church with that glorified church and find ourselves worshiping together. So with those great words of redemption, those great words of celestial worship, to which we are called in this very moment, found in verses 3 through 5 that we talked about last week, it, those, that image, that picture is, is hovering in the background while we are now introduced to the great promise in this passage of the Great Commission, and that is the truth of God poured into all the earth. Verses 6 and 7 
Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Well, what we're going to see, and we won't get to all of this this morning, in this chapter are six angels, along with the Son of Man, who is Christ, performing specific actions. And another thing, in order for us to understand the way this works, similar to the breaking of the seals. Remember, the breaking of the seals of the scroll were kind of a a prelude to the actual judgments that would come. What we're reading here are preludes to the actual events that will come later in this chapter. But here we are with the first angel, and the first angel is making a proclamation. But first we read that this angel is in the midst of heaven, or mid-heaven, some versions will say. And basically, the message conveyed there is this angel is going to be seen by all. Center stage, and this angel is preaching. And what is this angel preaching? I don't know, you may find it shocking to find that there's disagreement here. It is the universal application of the everlasting gospel. He is in the midst of heaven, and he's proclaiming the everlasting gospel to every tribe and nation and tongue and so forth. Now, again, I, I don't want to be overly polemical. I don't want this to turn into a seminary class. Yet at the same time, I'm going to have to say that that what we see here is yet another weight on the scale against a premillennial futurist understanding of the Revelation, or to put it more clearly, that most of Revelation, as is so commonly believed today, is about our future, or about the end of the world. Because, friends, and you can just calculate this on your own, it doesn't require a theologian to recognize this, If this is the end of history, it hardly makes sense that the gospel is now going to be proclaimed. Now again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but I'll take one more step in that direction. Just so you, I don't know, I I think it's important to be informed. You need to kind of understand what people think. You see, theologians who hold to the view that Revelation is primarily about the end of the world rather than primarily about the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. It certainly does include the end of the world. We'll get there in chapters 20 through 22. But this is another thing. When you're reading the Revelation or reading about the end times and you've got these scales going and you're like going, I want to be fair, I want to be biblical. But I have a hard time interpreting the everlasting gospel as something other than the gospel. See, those who hold to the futurist view, they don't say this is the gospel at all. Now, you know, to be fair and honest, there's a way to read this and have it not be the gospel. But I would say the most natural reading of the angel preaching the everlasting gospel is that it's the gospel. And you might say, well, why would an angel do this? But does not Paul say, if you hear another gospel, even from an angel, right? Let them be anathema. I mean, so it's not as if that can't be the way this would unfold. But some say that this is a summons just to worship in general. This is not the gospel. This is the end of history. This is Judgment Day, and it's a call to worship. 
Others say that it is somehow the good news of judgment and condemnation. It's the good news, but it's the good news of judgment and condemnation. You see the footnote there if you wanted to research this yourselves. But respectfully, I disagree. And I believe this is the gospel. And he talks about the hour of judgment. The old covenant is coming to an end. And it would end in a great judgment. And now we have the new covenant. The new international covenant. This globally redeeming message that will go forth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now, once again, I want to point this out. When we get to Revelation, it's not as if we're reading something inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. This is the message of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That God is not going to leave us at the mercy of that which is dark and deceitful. That He promised to send His Son. And that at the end of the Old Covenant, we see that there's a proclamation that there's this curse, but then we see the New Covenant begin with Christ. But we see even there, John the Baptist proclaiming at the very beginning that what's going to happen? The winnowing fork is in his hands. The axe is at the root of the tree. God is going to come in judgment. The temple is going to be destroyed. And I think that's what John is alluding to here. When he talks about the hour of judgment, God is going to judge the apostasy of that old covenant church. And we have a new nation, right? It'll be taken away from them and given to another bearing the fruits thereof, Jesus taught. And that would be the new covenant church. And what's different between the old covenant church, Israel, and the new covenant church? Well, there's a lot of things. One is that you no longer have types and shadows, but you have the fulfillment in Christ. But another thing, and we see it here in the passage, is that the New Covenant Church is not restricted to Israel, right? But it's the Great Commission. Go forth into what? All nations. And we see that happening here in this proclamation of the gospel. God is gracious, and he has proclaimed that there will be a victory and that those who by grace through faith call upon his name will share in that victory. Verse 8, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Clearly here, the actual nation, and nobody, everybody is in agreement on this, the actual Nation of Babylon is not being referenced here. It's not talking about Babylon. It would become entirely insignificant as a world power by then. But we have to understand a couple things in order for the Bible to make sense. And that one of those things is that Babylon had become a symbol of the enemies of God. There is some debate here. And um, again, I know I'm presenting a lot of debates, but these are debates within people who I agree with right, for the most part, and that is, who is Babylon? Is Babylon Jerusalem, or is Babylon the Roman Empire? And I'm going to just say, you know, I mean, I, this is one of those positions that you, if you take me out and buy me a nice steak and a, a cab, you, you may be able to change my mind on this. I, I don't think it's as ironclad that it's one or the other, but I'm going to tell you now why I think it's probably Rome and not Jerusalem. For what this is worth in terms of your study. 
And I, the reason I don't think it's a super big deal, and, it, and I don't want to say, I hate it when people say, oh, well, it's no big deal, and all they mean by that is I haven't really figured it out. And so it may be a big deal, and I just haven't figured out why it's a big deal. But it's not super clear to me. I, I lean on one side over the other, but I think the outcome is the same. Whether it's Rome or Jerusalem, what God is doing is he's clearing away, he's paving the path for the gospel to go forth, and the enemies of the gospel in the early church to be removed from the equation. And again, for sure, it would be Jerusalem, but also the Roman Empire which was kind of serving Jerusalem in terms of the evil things that they desired to do. Let me tell you why briefly, though, if you're interested. If not, you can just kind of relax for a minute. Why I think it's uh, Rome over Jerusalem. I'll give you four reasons. First, Peter, who everybody agrees was writing his short epistle from Rome, concludes that first epistle with the words, she who is in Babylon, greets you. So he was in Rome writing, and he's going, the people in Babylon greet you, but he was in Rome when he said that, right? You can, you can calculate that. So he's equating Babylon with Rome in that, in that verse. Second, the context which speaks of these beasts is, I think, clearly a reference to Rome and its Caesar. So we're in the context of dealing with the beast, who I believe to be the Roman Empire, and its Caesars, not here, Jerusalem. Third, chapter 17, which also speaks of Babylon, speaks of seven mountains on which the woman sits. And I don't know if it's clear to all of you, I mean, but throughout history, Rome was known as the city on the seven hills, or the city on the seven mountains. It's the way we would call, if I were to say the Big Apple, who am I, what am I talking about? Right, if I said the Windy City, what was I talking about? All right, okay, so, see, you who have wisdom, <laughs> calculate. And finally, the fourth reason, and there's more, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of a, a, a reasoning behind this. this. The, um, the little book, we're in the prophecy of the little book, which is distinct from the, the scroll, and that little book was a, a larger and more international prophecy. In the little book, we see prophesy to every nation and every language and every tongue. So we see the little book is more expansive in terms of the international message given there. But let's leave that for now. Whether it's Rome or Jerusalem, for our purposes, or really any other nation or power or influence that arrives on the scene, That was the first century or the first couple of centuries. But this is a problem that just happens throughout the course of history. But here's the indictment against those influences, those powers. And that is, their function was to make all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Those are very strong words issuing a very strong warning against those forces that would seek to subdue human hearts. This idea of you're drinking with them, you're engaging with them, and you're becoming part of that dark culture. this, This is the power, this is the influence, in this case, the nation that would find itself under the wrath of God. 
That's, that is severe judgment. And I, I recognize, I think, the culture in which I live. I mean, I interact with people who are not in the church. And I think that a severe judgment coming against those who take rank against the truth of Christ and the hope of his gospel seems to many people to be antiquated and almost mythical. When you talk about God judging, you, you'll hear scoffs. But that's not unique to our generation. Even in John's own day, there was that same mentality that he had to deal with in terms of, I'm not going to seem very sophisticated or erudite in the public square when I begin to announce these things. Because even in his day, people deluded themselves with the words, peace and safety. Then, sudden destruction comes. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 They were like, hey, yesterday ended in today, and tomorrow will be like today, and nothing's ever going to happen. And what they needed to hear was, you're saying peace and safety as if no judgment will come, but a judgment will come. And it is an act of love on the writers of these epistles to warn us of such a thing. But understand this as well, that God's judgment of nations throughout history, because he raises, right, and deposes kings. He raises and deposes nations. He brings them up and he brings them down. But the whole idea of God doing this to a nation or a power or a, some type of human force or influence moves way into the background now in these next few verses. Because John now moves from the judgment of a nation, which basically is God going, this nation will no longer exist, to something much more personal and much more eternally tragic. Verses 9 through 11, now we have the third angel. Then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. In, a, in one of the debates I had with an atheist, for some reason, or I don't remember why, the question and answer time moved into the subject of hell. And I have to say, I forget in detail how I described hell when asked in that debate, but I, I did notice later on when I went to the comment section of the post of the debate, a comment that one of the listeners had that I found almost shocking. He said something to the effect, Pastor Vigiano's description of hell is dreadful. I mean, I was shocked because he didn't realize that hell is dreadful. Hell is dreadful. 
Friends, there are evil powers which seek our hearts. And these evil powers, again, whether nations or other types of man-made creaturely influencers, will meet their end. But those who take the mark on their forehead or hand, and what I, I've argued before, what that means, they, they've won your thoughts and they've won your labor. You've acknowledged them as your, as your Lord in your mind, as, as, your, as your Savior in your mind, and the Lord of your efforts. It's not a tattoo. It's not a subcutaneous computer chip. It is the acknowledgement that you have won my heart and I will serve you. That's, that is the mark of the beast. We have no king but Caesar is the mark of the beast. It is those who refuse the grace of God who shall drink the wine of the wrath of God. Dr. Greg Bonson called this one of the most terrible passages or the terrible paragraphs in all of Scripture. The indignation of God <clears throat> poured out full strength is the, are the words. It's, 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 there, there's a whole description of the type of you know, wine that they're talking about, you know, but it's, it's undiluted, powerful wrath. Fire and brimstone brings our minds right to Sodom and Gomorrah and this torment in the, quote, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb confronts us with the sad reality that the hope of this blessing that they could have had was willfully rejected. It's, it's almost as if the torment is going, you will eternally recognize what you willfully rejected. And also a reminder in that, in that courtroom, if you will, of the just nature of the verdict. Adding to this agony is the everlasting nature of it. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Friends, the Scriptures, and often Jesus Himself, matter of fact, Jesus quite a bit. You know, it's been pointed out that Jesus spoke more of Gehenna, more of hell, than He did of heaven. And it wasn't an act of, of maliciousness that he would do that. It was an act of love to warn the impending doom of his listeners of what would befall them if they continued in their willful rejection of the grace of God. But he would use the most horrifying language available to describe hell. You know, I, I find myself in sermons avoiding talking about heaven or hell. <clears throat> and I've asked myself, why is that? Why do you not want to talk about heaven so much or talk about hell so much? And I think, you know, at least the conclusion I came up with is that I just feel like I just can't do it. I can't get us to the beauty and the glory of heaven. I, I feel like if I try to describe it, I'm just like... You know, I'm failing to describe the glory of that eternity. You understand? It's like trying to, I don't know, I don't know how to, trying to tell somebody what a beautiful painting looks like. And you realize while you're 
trying to explain it to them, you're ex- describing a paint by numbers, right? Rather than describing, you know, something by Da Vinci. You're like, going, I, I can't describe it. You got to kind of see it for yourself. And I feel the same way about hell. I feel like no matter what I say about hell, I can't get us to understand how dreadful it actually is. I was listening to R.C. Sproul talk about, you know, hell. And he made an interesting observation. He said, you know, when we read about descriptions of hell in the Bible, fire and brimstone, smoke of torment, where the worm never dies and so forth, he said, we really shouldn't take those things literally. And I think when he said that, it was almost like the whole audience kind of took a deep breath, like, R.C., are you becoming a liberal? Do you not believe in hell anymore? And then he stopped and he said, before you take a big breath of relief, you need to understand this, that hell, as with most metaphors, the reality is worse than the metaphor used to describe it. Two more points here before we move on to the last couple of verses. First, it is my prayer that by the grace of God, hell is not that which awaits you. Don't believe the world when they say there is no hell. There, There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of judgment. Let, let, let God be true and every man a liar. We need to recognize the reality of eternal judgment. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Because once you have that close, real encounter with hell, there's no escape. Seek him while he may be found. By grace through faith, call upon the name of Christ. And secondly, <clears throat> let us appreciate this as we speak of how horrible hell is, that in order for us to escape this wrath, it had to be paid for by another. God doesn't wink at sin. He will in no way acquit the guilty. God does not ignore justice. He is a just God. And so this dark hell of which we speak had to be dealt with by somebody. And the scriptures declare in no uncertain terms that it was Christ who became a curse for us. Maybe even today when we go to the Lord's table and we hear these words that I always end with, people have asked, why do you end with that phrase? And I end with that phrase because it's the next phrase in the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let us be mindful that included in that death which we proclaim in that meal is his becoming a curse for us that we may have a way of escape. If you are familiar at all with kind of Reformed theology, you'll recognize that people in Reformed pulpits labor to teach that salvation is found by grace alone. Salvation is found by faith alone, in Christ alone. But when we read our Bibles, we don't always see, the Bible's not a systematic theology, right? And what we're going to read sometimes when we see our Bible is, in this particular 
final portion of the passage, John is not going to be all that careful as to carve up the Christian faith in such a way as to have salvation apart from the necessary fruit of obedience. You know, I, I have to say, when I read things Jesus said in terms of the presentation of the gospel, I'm like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it that way. Right? If somebody came up to me and said, How must, what must I do to be saved? I would, I would go right to my systematic theology, right? Believe in the Lord. Trust in Christ. Repent and follow Him. What does Jesus say? He's like, well, what does the Bible say? How do you read it? <clears throat> then, he, then he says, well, it says, obey, right? Love the Lord your God. Keep the commandments. Jesus says, well, go ahead. He doesn't say it this way, but he says, knock yourself out. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing. It's not just once, a couple of, t- couple of times. And it's amazing because in the same dialogue... He reveals that with man, it is what? Impossible. And so we we don't see in the Bible them making clear distinctions the way as you you read the whole Bible, you go, well, these distinctions are important to make. Yet at the same time, they're not always there as clear. And I would say these last two verses would be a good example of it. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Interestingly enough, I think what we see here are questions three and four of our membership vows. Faith in Christ as Savior and faith in Christ as Lord. They keep the commandments and they have faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Let me tell you, and I hope this doesn't sound uncharitable, and it's certainly not to me, meant to be, but there's a very dangerous trend among evangelicals that the mere saying of a prayer is sufficient for salvation. And don't get me wrong, your salvation, when God opened your eyes to reveal to you your sin and need for a Savior, and that Savior being Christ, that may have included a prayer. I'm not against praying at that moment. But what we see happening today is people come forward and they pray a prayer at a crusade, and then they somehow tuck that prayer away in their hearts, live as they please, and then call upon that baggaged prayer only when the moment requires. And that is not biblical Christianity at all. The fruit of obedience. And it's called fruit because it doesn't produce itself, right? Produce Fruit is produced by something else, right? right? A, a, a true tree produces whatever fruit that type of tree produces. And a person who has as their foundation, as, their, as the root of their heart, faith in Christ, if God has opened your eyes to that, then that's, the fruit doesn't make the tree, you know, an, an apple doesn't make an apple tree an apple tree. It produces fruit because it's an apple tree. And sometimes, you know, with a lot of us, the fruit could look better than it is, but it's fruit nonetheless. But if the tree is producing plums, it's not an apple tree. Right? And so this is a message we see throughout the Scripture. And 
It is necessary fruit. And what does that mean? It means it must be there. And if you don't have the fruit of true saving faith, you need to ask yourself whether or not you have true saving faith. The confession, I think, puts it nicely, and it's going to go a little further than my point here, but it's such a beautiful paragraph, I thought we'd read the whole thing. Westminster Confession 16.2 says, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively I mean, that's my point, but I want to just say a couple other things here, and I'm not going to, you can just kind of process in your own mind. And by them, that is, these good works, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. The good works of those, by the way, receiving this letter, the original receivers of this letter, their good works were going to cost them dearly. We live in a culture where our good works may cost us a dirty look or a sneer, some type of snarky comment. But the the original readers and others, not only throughout the course of history, but in the world today, to live obediently would require that they pay the ultimate price. For this reason, they are given one of the seven glorious benedictions we see in the Revelation. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And in contrast to those who are damned, who have no rest day or night, the faithful will rest from their labors and their works will follow them. Friends, there's something eternally significant about our labor in the Lord. And I think it is for that reason that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, And I think what he's writing here is very consistent with the call throughout the Revelation, which is to persevere, right? To overcome, to be faithful, to not give up. Paul writes this, because I no doubt he himself and others were beginning to feel tired. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us the wisdom to see, as it were, those glittery objects by which we are surrounded that would seek to win our hearts, help us to be wise against them, and help us ever to call upon the one who can deliver us from sin and death and the tragedies of hell. Help our Father, we do pray that you would expand our thinking and our understanding of what was endured by Christ in order for us to have this redemption. Things that we can't even describe that go beyond human comprehension that Jesus would endure the wrath of the living God for all who he would save. 
Father, our, our minds don't even get there, but we do pray, Father, that we would seek to grasp it more fully, and we do pray that our response to that would be a more robust worship and praise of His holy name, and we pray in His name. Amen.